This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, that down through the centuries, it is through God the Holy Spirit that the prophets were moved to accurately, precisely record your word, that that which they recorded was without error and infallible and reflects your character. Father, we're thankful that we have your word to illuminate our thinking so that we can understand truth, so that on the basis of your truth, we can understand uh, and evaluate various other claims to truth that your word is infallible. Father, we pray today that as we look at a controversial subject, that we will see that your word gives very clear light on the subject, and that uh, even though it is controversial, it is very clear what you have provided and how we are to understand these things. And we pray that you would help us to follow along and to understand these things. In Christ's name, amen. All right, this morning we are going to begin with a little review just very quickly. So if you haven't been here, it's going to go by real fast because I've covered this for the last three or four Sundays in some detail. But it brings us back to wherever we've been and whatever we've been thinking about and maybe wake us up a little bit this morning so that we can get back into the context of the study. We're looking this morning at what the Bible teaches about temporary and permanent gifts. And this is controversial. It wasn't controversial through most of the history of Christianity, but it became controversial because in the middle of the 19th century, there developed a movement uh, mostly within Wesleyanism or Methodism that somehow we didn't quite get everything when we got saved. In other words, that God gave us a grace package related to our eternal life, but not necessarily for our spiritual life because we face all kinds of struggles and problems and we don't really feel like we have much victory over sin in our life, so therefore we must have missed something and we need to uh, get something. And there were a lot of issues related to that. 
And so mostly they were looking at the idea that there must be some second work of grace after salvation. And so they would identify that as yieldedness, as dedication, as um, just an experience of holiness. And by the end of the 19th century, it began to be identified in some groups as the baptism by the Spirit. And then there were some that were saying, well, it appears in a study of Acts that when the early Christians were baptized by the Spirit, that they spoke in languages that they had not previously learned. Now, the King James translated that as tongues, which in English is just another synonym for languages, but it's been taken out of context and abused, so I prefer to stick with a more literal up-to-date translation and translate that as languages because that's that's the context uh, of the Scripture, and that's what, what it is saying. And so on on the New Year's Eve coming into 1901, the beginning of the uh, 20, 20th century, there was a group of students at a uh, Topeka Bible in Topeka, Kansas, at the Bethel Bible College, and there they were being taught and influenced by a holiness evangelist and preacher by the name of, of uh, Charles Parham. And he had come to this belief, and it, they were praying that on that night they would be anointed by the Holy Spirit, and they would speak in tongues. And lo and behold, just after midnight, one of the ladies by the name of Agnes Osmond, Osmond spoke in what nobody could understand, so they assumed that it was Chinese, and that they, because they initially believed that it was that speaking in tongues were legitimate languages. And so they, this is the birth of the modern Pentecostal movement. It was later discovered that it wasn't Chinese at all. It was just gibberish. And so the understanding of what tongues language was had to be modified. And so they came along with the idea that this was uh, an angelic language and that it wasn't like a human language at all. And often today you will hear people say that, oh, my walk with the Lord is so much more intense and so much more intimate now that I can pray in, uh, in a prayer language. And one time I had a conversation with a Pentecostal, and, and he made the claim that his prayers were answered so much more when he prayed in tongues. And I asked, I said, do you understand what you're praying for? Oh, no, it's a prayer language. I said, well, how do you know God answers them? How do you know what you prayed for if you can't understand what's coming out of your mouth? So there are lots of issues with this. And as a result of those events in, on January 1st, 1901, we had the birth of what became known as the Pentecostal movement. And that meant basically that people believed that you had a second experience of grace after salvation, and it was identified as the baptism by the Holy Spirit, and that it was necessarily evidenced by speaking in tongues. If you didn't speak in tongues, you didn't have this this second experience, this work of grace, Uh, so therefore you were just a second-class Christian. And so they were basically kicked out of most of the denominations. And so those are the, the, the characteristics of, a, of traditional Pentecostalism. 
1959, an Episcopal rector at St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Van Nuys, California, spoke in tongues and admitted it to his congregation. They didn't kick him out. And so you had the birth of the modern charismatic movement, which meant that they still believed that it's a second work of grace, it's the baptism by the Spirit, and you spoke in tongues. But you didn't have to leave your denomination, so now we have a lot of oxymorons known as um, charismatic Baptists and charismatic Presbyterians and charismatic Episcopals and charismatic Catholics and so on. Then in the 70s, you had a third shift, and this was people who came more out of Bible churches, and they said, well, not everybody gets the gift. Well, that was true. That's good. And it isn't uh, necessary. It's not necessarily associated with the baptism by the Spirit, and they had about four different definitions of what that was. And so that became known as the third wave of the signs and wonders movement. And then it's gone on to something I mentioned last week, the National Apostolic, uh, yeah, the National, uh, the, the New Apostolic Reformation. And that's the fourth wave. So all of this is, is intermingled. So we're just going to look at the scriptures, uh, out of what we've been, been studying. Now, last week we started here with Ephesians 4. Uh, 11 to 13, that Christ, that's he himself, emphasizing that Christ is the one who gave some. And the emphasis here, that's an accurate translation, and he's giving people to the church, gifted people to the church. Now, obviously, they have these spiritual gifts, but they're gifted people, and they are apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, for the purpose of equipping the saints. That's one way of expressing a broader purpose clause, and your secondary ultimate purposes are for the work of the ministry, for edifying, that is, building up or maturing the body of Christ until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, the fact that this is talking about four spiritual gifts, three terms here are used again in the listing of the gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There's also an emphasis on maturity, which is a word, and the word there is used in 1 Corinthians 13, 8. And then it will go on to end in verse 16 talking about uh, the the love that characterizes the body of Christ. Now, all of those themes are present and developed more fully in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which is why we're going to focus there. But I just want to remind you what we have learned about the church, just the basics in Scripture. This is our review. First of all, the use of the term church in the New Testament can mean the universal or invisible church, which includes all church-age believers from the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, uh, AD 33, up until the rapture of the church. This is known as the body of Christ, and it includes all those who are presently in heaven and those who are still alive on the earth. The singular word church in the Greek can refer to multiple churches in a city or in a region, and we have evidence of that, so it's not, it doesn't have to be plural to be speaking about plural congregations. And then it also it primarily speaks of a local assembly made up of those who are believers in Jesus Christ. The importance of that is the meeting of the church 
is not for unbelievers. Now, unbelievers will come and they will hear the gospel, but the meeting of the church is to equip believers to do the work of the ministry. And there are many denominations who have failed to comprehend that that's their mission is to train believers and there are often those who uh, spend all of their time trying to evangelize the unbelievers that are there. The church began, as I said, on the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33. In Matthew 16, Jesus said, future tense, I will in the future build my church, meaning it was not present when Christ was on the earth. In Acts 5.11, we have the first use of the word ecclesia, and by that time, the church was present. So it's somewhere between Matthew 16 and Acts 5, and bingo, it's in Acts 2. Then we look at uh, the sign of the church, which is the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Nobody was baptized by the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. No one will be in the tribulation or in the future. This is distinctive to the church age. And so John the Baptist talked about it as a yet future event. And Jesus said it was soon coming in Acts 1-5 and that the disciples were to wait in Jerusalem until uh, the Spirit came. So this is a sign of the church and indicates uh, the beginning of the church age. Third thing we looked at is that the church is not to be equated with the kingdom. The kingdom is a messianic kingdom. The word kingdom is used three ways. It's the universal rule of God over all his creation. And so you will look at passages in the Psalms that talk about God our king. Who's speaking? An Israelite. Who's their king? God, according to the Mosaic Covenant. He is the ultimate king. It was a theocracy. And so that is called the theocratic rule of God over Israel uh, in the past and then in the future in the millennial kingdom. That future reign of Christ is also referred to as the kingdom, but it is not today. Uh, We will be there ruling and reigning with Christ as the bride of Christ, and it is it begins when Christ returns at the second coming. He is crowned. Uh, he has comes back with many crowns. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and establishes his rule uh, upon the earth. And as I pointed out in Daniel seven twenty six and twenty seven, the kingdom has to be taken from the Antichrist before it is given to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Fourth, the church is not spiritual Israel. Israel was not the church in the Old Testament. They are distinctive entities. And so we must, as church-age believers, maintain this distinction from Israel and that we're not in the kingdom now. So these gifts, gifted people, are given to the church to equip the saints. We saw that an apostle is the first one. He's commissioned by Christ to the task of establishing the church. It's important to identify who does the commissioning and what the purpose of the commissioning is because there are others that are called apostles, but they're commissioned by a local church to go forth as missionaries. Now, I don't think it's good to use the term apostle 
in that sense today because it just confuses the whole issue because there are the 12 and then there are these uh, that were commissioned and sent out by, by the local church. Revelation 21.14 talks about that specific group as the 12 apostles and their names on the foundations of the city, the New Jerusalem, in the, in the future. An apostle had to be an eyewitness of the words and works of Christ. No one is that old today, so there are no apostles in that sense today. And as I said, there are just these others who were uh, sent out from local congregations. Three things indicate that the apostleship was temporary. First of all, it was limited to those only those who had witnessed the resurrection and were called and directly commissioned by Christ. Second... Apostles and prophets were the foundation of the church. You only lay the foundation once. You don't lay it every time you put a different floor on the building. And the church is uh, compared to a building in several passages, um, but especially in Acts at the end of Ephesians uh, chapter 2. And the term, the use of apostle to designate someone sent by a congregation doesn't mean that they had a spiritual gift, but uh, even though uh, they may have had that that office in the early church, and it was a missionary type of office, so that the purpose of these foundational gifts was to provide spiritual direction in the early years of the church through verbal and written revelation. The New Testament hadn't been written yet, so it was necessary to have uh, apostles and prophets who were channels of the new revelation given for the church age, which is the New Testament. And so once the New Testament's completed, then the purpose and the need for those spiritual gifts, those gifted leaders, no longer existed. So that's the framework. What does the Bible teach about spiritual gifts? Our key passage that we're looking at this morning is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 8 and going to the end of the chapter, verse 13. Now, this is in a context, and most of you know that I put a lot of emphasis on context, that we can't just take verses out of context. And one of the verses that is frequently taken out of context and applied in all kinds of uh, ways that it shouldn't be is from Philippians chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've got a new mug that says, I can do all things through any verse taken out of context. (laughs) Okay, so we have to be careful here. 1 Corinthians 13 is usually identified as the love chapter because of the description of love that is given primarily in three verses, verses uh, 6 through, I mean 5 through, what is it, uh, 4 through 7, 4 through 7 those four verses. So that's a description of love, and the significance of love is described in verses 1 through 3 that no matter what your spiritual gift is, if you are not operating within the framework of biblical love, then it's useless. It is worthless. It is not valuable uh, to anyone. And that section from verses 1 through 7 sets the framework for what Paul will say in verses 8 through 13, which begins with this first phrase, love, that is biblical love, not the simpering, sentimental, superficial human love, 
that is commonly thought of by people today. When the Bible talks about love, it is a reflection of the love of God. And the love of God works uh, consistently with his, the other attributes. And in years gone by, in the 19th century, there was uh, really within Protestant liberalism, there developed the, the uh, surgical removal and separation of love from God's justice. But the reality is divine love operates on the ethics. It has to be ethical. Love operates on the ethic, the standard of God's character, which is his righteousness. And the expression of his righteousness toward his creatures is called justice. So righteousness expresses the standard of God's character. Justice, uh, the application of that righteous standard to his creatures. And love uh, surrounds all of that. A love that is not righteous is just ridiculous. All it is is emotionalism. It has no values. It has no integrity. It has no significance. Love that is separated from from justice, uh, again, is nothing more than emotionalism and sentimentality. On the other hand, righteousness and justice that are separated from love also become nothing more than 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 just a uh, a harsh uh, tyranny a legalism the three go hand in hand and work together within the character of god and so the idea for the believer is not to be loving in the way the world defines loving but to be loving in the way the bible defines loving and the examples that we have in scripture of god's love god's love has freely given to us Everything that we have as Christians, beyond anything we can ask or think, it has freely given us a Savior who paid for our sin penalty on the cross. God's love is forgiving to the nth degree. But the problem that we have today is that when we separate God's love from his justice, then you end up saying, well, that God in the Old Testament, he's just an evil, wicked God, which was what liberal theology held to. That God is too harsh. He called for the complete annihilation of the Canaanites. That's racist. That's what modern man says. That's racist. That can't be loving. So we've got to change that. Well, wait a minute. Maybe you ought to change the way you think about love because God's love also works with his omniscience. And he knows all of the knowable. He knows every factor. And little pipsqueak humans don't know anything. They know about one-tenth of one billionth of one percent. And on that minuscule amount of information, they are going to judge the omnipotent, omniscient, righteous God and say that's not really loving to do that. He called for the death penalty in the Mosaic Law for someone who uh, claimed to be speaking for him. Well, why can't we be understanding? And this person is, uh, they, they just have this, uh, this uh, uh, experience and they think they're a prophet. So, so let's not be too harsh with them. After all, maybe they're saying a few things that are true. But God said, if it's not 100% true, then you decapitate them, you stone them, you do whatever you punish them, take their life through capital punishment because they are leading my people astray. 
And the punishment that they had under the Mosaic law was stoning, but there were other punishments that they used along the way, but they had to understand that. And they weren't very good along the way at stoning. Uh, If you remember, there is the example uh, in 1 Kings 18 of Elijah and uh, the demonstration on Mount Carmel, and that those false prophets were uh, were all stoned. And uh, later on, you have the example of of the disobedience of Saul, actually earlier, uh, the disobedience of Saul when Saul refused to uh, annihilate all of the Amalekites and he brought Agag the king back because he was going to be kind to him and maybe get some extra booty and plunder from him. And so Samuel, the prophet of God, walked in saw Agag standing there alive and unharmed, and he took Saul's sword and swung it and decapitated Agag on the spot. That's the love of God. We have to factor those events into our definition of love, tough love in modern, in modern parlance. So the biblical concept of love doesn't fail. Now, this is in a context. The context starts in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. It goes through chapter 14. And we just have to review a couple of things about these spiritual gifts. The spiritual gifts we see there are divinely and sovereignly given gifts for the body of Christ. You didn't have spiritual gifts in the Old Testament. You had prophets and you had some who healed in the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, they didn't have spiritual gifts because spiritual gifts, by definition, is for the body of Christ. And you don't have the body of Christ in the Old Testament, so therefore you don't have spiritual gifts. There's no indwelling of the Holy Spirit, no baptism by the Holy Spirit. None of that happened in the Old Testament. So they are gifts from God, but they are not spiritual gifts. A lot of people get confused on on some of these uh, particular issues. The key passage is in the Bible on spiritual gifts, or Romans uh, 12, 3 through 8, which also emphasizes love. First uh, Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. In chapter 12, you have them identified as gifts given by the Holy Spirit, distributed by the Holy Spirit at the time of the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 13 talks about the gifts that are not permanent. And chapter 14 talks about the regulations for the practice and the use of, of t- the gift of tongues, the gift of languages, and the gift of prophecy during the time in which they were still in effect. And then we have these four gifts that are mentioned in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. The context talks about uh, the gifts given by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all, not for any kind of personal benefit. How many times do we hear Pentecostals say, oh, my relationship with God is so much better because I have this gift of tongues. It's all about me. No wonder they're so popular. One of the most eye-opening statements that I ever heard was when one of my professors at Dallas Seminary said that, that, um, that today we live in a world that focuses on self, and it's all about knowledge from personal experience. So you don't have to change your worldview to become a charismatic Christian. You're still focused on self, and you're still basing your knowledge on experience. 
so you don't have to change your worldview. No wonder they're so popular. They can keep on living and thinking like a pagan and just slap a bunch of God words on it. It's for the profit of all. It's to benefit others. 1 Corinthians 12, 8, to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit. And then it goes on to say, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills, not because you grovel down an aisle and pray for it, but because it's given at the instant of salvation and you aren't consulted. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. See, it's all about the body of Christ. Then later... We read, and God has appointed these in the church. Notice the order. The first three you have similar to Ephesians 4. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and after that, miracles, gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of languages. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? See, they're all phrased expecting the answer of no. He said, but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. So from these passages, we see this list of temporary gifts, the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, faith, uh, faith in this sense, okay? It's not faith like trusting Christ as Savior or faith in the sense of claiming a promise. It is Uh, the faith that undergirded these miracles that the apostles and uh, prophets and those with these temporary gifts performed. Uh, The gifts of healings, miracles, prophecy, discerning spirits, different kinds of languages, and the interpretation of languages. So that's the context. It's all about spiritual gifts. And then the point at the center of it is that the operation and use of our spiritual gifts when we serve the Lord is to be within the framework of divine love. Chapter 14 describes that and puts regulations on it. Some people think, well, if it's loving, you don't have to have regulations. That's antinomianism and lawlessness, and that's not loving. Regulations for the use of the gift of languages and the gift of prophecy. So the discussion of love is introduced in chapter 13 because all of these gifts, as well as the spiritual qualities of faith and hope, of all of them, only love is permanent. By permanent, I mean going on into eternity. And all of the gifts must operate on divine love, not on emotion. So verse 8 begins saying, love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. And whether there is knowledge, it will fail. Now, I've changed the translation of that because what you normally have in in the King James Version is what you have in black here. It translates the first one, they will fail, and the last one, it will vanish away. But in both places, The Greek is the verb katargeo, which means to abolish, to end, to cease, to bring to an end. 
that idea. But when the King James translator buried the translation, the English readers failed to see that this is one of uh, several key words in the passage that link everything together, and you're not going to get the unity of the argument if you don't understand how these words are used. So it starts off identifying the fact that prophecies and knowledge, these two spiritual gifts, are temporary. They will fail. Sandwiched between them is the gift of languages, which will cease. It's a different verb, and the difference there is significant. So it's set up like this. The but tells us that it's contrasting love with that has just been described in the previous seven verses. It's contrasting it with these two gifts that represent the whole of the the, uh, temporary gifts. Contrast love with prophecies, which which was revelatory. It's not foretelling. Some of you may have come up in some uh, churches where they talk about prophecy as preaching. No, prophecy wasn't preaching. They they change the meaning of prophecy in the New Testament and make it different from the Old Testament when there's no biblical justification for that. When the first time you see the word prophet used in the New Testament and all subsequent uses related to this, it's never defined differently from the way it's been used in in the Old Testament. And so there's no justification. Being a prophet in the New Testament is not preaching, and it is not foretelling as uh, uh, about, I mean, it's not foretelling as opposed to foretelling. That's how they get around. So see, we still have the gift of prophecy. Well, you're, 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 being, you're, you're not being um, accurate with your use of, the, of the, the terms in the Scripture. So where there are prophecies, they will fail. That's katargeo. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. This is the word power. I'll talk about that in a minute. And where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. So these three are not, per, not going to last as long as the others. That's the first point we need to understand. The word ka'orgeo means that it will be abolished. And it's going to show up again uh, when, it, when we look at verse 11, which says, When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I katargeo, I set aside childish things. See, if you keep translating that word with different terms, you lose the fact that by using that word again in verse 11, you understand that this this analogy to a child to an adult is uh, an analogy for understanding that as a child you have these gifts, the childhood of the church, but in the maturity of the church, once they have the completed word of God, then you don't need those gifts anymore. Their purpose no longer exists. In contrast to this statement that, some, that they will just be abolished, you have the use of pao, which has the idea of it just going to die out on its own. It's just going to disappear. There's not necessarily something that's going to cause it to disappear. It's just going to gradually die out. And we'll learn the significance of that when we get to verse Uh, verse 9, or excuse me, verse 10, when it says, when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part, again, katargeo, will be set aside. So the the, the next verses identify the fact that that, um, prophecy and knowledge are partial. 
and they're abolished. Tongues is never mentioned again because it's just going to disappear, just going to vanish. Okay, so what we've seen so far is that there's a significance of the shift in verbs and voice in verse 8. They're all future to when Paul is speaking. So that means at the time Paul is speaking, they were still active, legitimate, and viable. But there will come a time in the future when prophecy and knowledge will be abolished and tongues will cease. Second, the meaning of the term perfect is the word teleos, which has the idea of bringing something to completion, bringing something to completion. And that works perfectly well in the context because it's going to talk about these two gifts as incomplete. They're partial. So it fits perfect when you have two things that are incomplete. Then when you use the word teleos, it fits it perfectly. When, when that which completes comes, that which is incomplete will be done away with, will be set aside. So we have this uh, then in the second half in verses 12 to 13, this temporal shift from now we have certain characteristics, but then, that is then when this perfect has come, uh, things will be different. So the point of the two illustrations that will come in verses 11 and 12 are to illustrate the condition now and how it will change then at this time in the future. Okay, I'm going to skip that quote. Uh, in verse 13, verse 8, love never fails. Prophecies will be set aside. Knowledge will be set aside. Tongues will just die out. Then in verse 9, we're told that now... We know in part. That word ekmerus means partial or we know incompletely. And we prophesy in part. So we listed three gifts, prophecy, tongues, knowledge. Now he takes two of them. He says these two are partial. They're incomplete. That means the revelation that comes through them is incomplete. Tongues wasn't for the purpose of revelation. But those two were. And so he's talking about something used to reveal God's word because in the New early New Testament church, and 1 Corinthians was one of the earliest books, you still don't have any much written, and it certainly hasn't found its way around all of the Roman Empire yet. And, and so they needed to know how they were to live and function and operate and think within this new church age. And so through the, uh, uh, through the apostles and prophets, revelation was given. And those who had word of knowledge, word of wisdom, this was all God speaking to give information necessary until they had the completed word of God. So knowledge is partial, prophecies partial are incomplete, but when the perfect, which means that which is complete, comes. So see how that fits together? We have knowledge is incomplete, prophecy is incomplete, but when that which completes comes, what's it completing? It's completing these revelatory gifts. So that tells us that that which is complete comes, it's got to be in the same category as prophecy and knowledge, which are gifts related to the giving of revelation. So in part, partial, incomplete, and, and something will come that completes it. All right, I think I have made that point clear. What we see is prophecy and knowledge are both partial. 
Prophecy and knowledge are both abolished or set aside. Prophecy and knowledge are set aside by the perfect, by that which completes. And maturity is what abolishes or supersedes childishness in that first illustration for when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, those childish things weren't necessary. The, ch- the thing that characterized the infancy of the church was they didn't have all of the New Testament, and so they needed uh, revelation from God to know how to think, how to act, how to live, and once that is given and the revelation is complete and sufficient, then there's no longer a need for those, uh, those two gifts. Now, you'll hear a lot of different views and may have heard some different views on the meaning of the perfect. One idea is that of completion, which is what I've emphasized. The other is the idea of perfection. There are two views that are basically saying the same thing. One is that it's the completed canon, and the other is that it's maturity. But I I knew the scholar who wrote the article arguing for maturity, and I said, well, what makes it mature? The completed canon. Okay, so they're basically saying the same thing. But on the other side, you have people who look at verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Notice, now, then. Now it's enigmatic is actually the word in the in the text it's 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 incomplete it's enigmatic i'm not sure what it's all saying but then face to face and how many of you immediately think face to face with the lord because you've heard that so much but it's not face to face with the lord here it doesn't say that's very important don't read it into the text death is it, and so some people think it's death and face to face with the lord Others will say it's at the rapture when you're face-to-face with the Lord. These are all basically the same thing. You're not in this life, you're in the next life. The second coming, well, Christ has come, and now you're in your resurrection body, so it's in the next life, eternal state, or in the eschaton, a favorite word of scholars to talk about the end times. There's a problem with that. Because in that view, which is the view that almost everybody holds... You've got serious scriptural problems. I remember that a friend of mine, one of my, at the time, one of my favorite professors at Dallas Seminary, uh, he changed a lot over the coming years, but at the time it was very good. One of the things that bothered me was uh, Bruce Bumgardner was in seminary, had him for a course on pneumatology, and he, he told the students, he said, now you have to write a position paper on tongues. But I don't want anybody taking the position that the, that the perfect is the canon because nobody believes that anymore. The irony is, is since he said that in the early 90s, there have been at least six published journal articles, including one by me, one by Andy Woods, that have all argued for the completed canon. It's not very dead. But that's what he said. So that, that's the irony. Now, 1 Corinthians 13.11 uses the child analogy, and uh, I've mentioned that already. So it's the word set aside. So we move from, from the now of being a child 
to the then of being mature. And when you're mature, you abolish, set aside childish things. Then in verse 12, we have another now and then. For now we see in a mirror, and that's what it is. It's not through a glass darkly. You look through a glass, you see through it. You can't see through the mirror. It's, I mean, through the window. If you're looking through a glass darkly, you're looking through a tinted window. You can't see what's on the other side. This is a term for a mirror. And in the ancient world, they use polished brass or polished metal. You don't get as clear a reflection in polished metal as you do with, with a glass mirror. And so you don't see a clear image. That's the illustration. Now we see through a mirror dimly, but then when something's going to happen, when these things are set aside, we're going to see face-to-face. What are we seeing face-to-face? We're looking in the completed canon of Scripture, and we are, James says, we look into the mirror of the Word of God. And some people look in the mirror of the Word of God, and they walk away, and they don't do anything. They still have spinach in their teeth. Their hair still looks like they've got bedhead. But if you pay attention to what, the, what you see in the mirror, you're going to comb your hair, and you're going to brush your teeth, and maybe a few other things. Get your collar right, those kinds of things. Um, so we see ourselves in the mirror of God's Word. So that enables us to know ourselves fully. The word there that theologians use is the per- perspicacity of Scripture. The perspicacity of Scripture. It means the Scripture is perspicuous. It shows exactly what's going on in your life and in your thinking and calls it exactly what it is. And we will be known uh, fully just as we've been fully known. It will reveal to ourselves accurately. Now, what's interesting is in the Old Testament, uh, there's a, a, a statement made where God is speaking to Moses and says, Hear my words, if there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses, because he is faithful in my household. With him I will speak mouth to mouth. See, that's the same imagery as face to face. Even openly and not enigmatically. See, there's that same word enigma in the Greek that you have in 1 Corinthians 13. Not enigmatically. And and so this is an illustration of the insufficiency of prophecy. You don't get it all. Moses had part of the message, Joshua had part of the message, Samuel had part of the message, Isaiah had part of the message, Daniel had part of the message, but it's not till you get the whole Old Testament that you get all of the Old Testament message. In the New Testament, you have Paul, you have Peter, you have John, and you had the various other prophets, Luke, um, that are giving their part of the message, but it's not till it all gets together and gets put into the canon that you see the full picture. And so that's, that's the imagery here. So now we see ourselves in this mirror dimly, but then when the canon is completed, it's face to face. Now I know myself partially because prophecy is partial. It's the same phrase. Prophecy is partial. Knowledge is partial. But now I see, and now I see myself partially, but then when the canon's completed, I shall, I, I, I shall know myself fully just as I have also been fully known. So here's a little illustration. Here's a child. 
He's not mature, and that's now. But then when you have a mature adult, you put aside childish things. So when we apply this to a timeline, the now is this pre-canon. Canon means rule. It's the standard. It's a collection of the New Testament writings. That's the pre-canon period from A.D. 33, the birth of the church, until 95. And then in the post-canon period, the post-apostolic period from 95 to the present is the then. But now abide faith, hope, and love. Now, what's interesting here is we think in that sense of perfect. Okay, I'm going to be in the presence of God. So the then, the now, and the then. Now it's partial, then it's complete. So under their view, the now is now on this life, and the then is when I'm face-to-face with the Lord. There's only one problem with that, and it's scriptural. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. Right now we walk by faith, not by sight. But then if that face-to-face is with the Lord, we would be walking by sight in heaven. Uh Uh-oh, faith is not by sight. So faith is not operative in heaven. Faith is for today when we walk by faith and not by sight. And then in Hebrews 11.1, the writer of Hebrews says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So faith is not operative in heaven because we see things for what they are. Not only that, but in Romans 8.24, Paul says, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. Uh Uh-oh. Faith and hope won't be functional in heaven because we will see. All right? So that means faith and hope will die out at the instant we leave this earth, whether it's a death or the rapture or second or whenever, okay? And so we can't say, well, the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, and love, if, if, it's, if it's second coming, then that means that when we go to heaven, faith, hope, and love are going to continue. But we've just seen faith, hope, and love don't continue in heaven. Love is the greatest because of those three, love's the only one that continues in, into the next life and into heaven. Now, the purpose of tongues, and I'll cover this quickly, was just to, as a sign of judgment. It wasn't really for revelation. There may have been some revelation, but its purpose wasn't. The purpose was when those apostles were speaking in unknown Gentile languages, they had not unknown the sense they hadn't learned them. Jews that were perceptive realized this was a sign of God's judgment on Israel because they knew the Old Testament. And so Paul quotes from Isaiah. He says, In the law it is written by men of strange tongues, and otherwise men of strange languages, and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So the gift of languages is not for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign. That's what Paul says. It's for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Isaiah 28, 11 is a prophecy that the Babylonians and the Assyrians are coming, and they're going to speak in unknown languages to you. And when you hear that in the holy places of Israel, you will know that it is my judgment on you. Why would they know that? Because of Deuteronomy twenty-eight forty-nine, 
where Moses said, The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand. So tongues were a sign of judgment. Any Jew that was present, and Paul always went to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Any Jew that heard Gentiles uh, quoting Scripture and giving the gospel, the fact that the holy Torah of Moses and was spoken in Gentile languages, that served as a sign of divine judgment on Israel. That's why they were scattered among the nations. So this gives us the purpose and an understanding of why God, it's not putting God in a box. I was pastoring a church one time, and one guy in the church came up, but you're putting God in a box. I said, the Bible doesn't put God in a box. The Bible just tells us that there are going to be some ways God will operate and some ways he won't. But that's not me putting God in a box. He told us that he would put himself in that box. He would do it a certain way and not another way. So we have temporary gifts, but the ones of those Four that are listed, the evangelist and the pastor teacher, these are the two gifts that do continue in the church age for the purpose of equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. That's the role of the pastor to teach the word of God, not to be a motivator. The motivation comes from the word of God, not the motivation of the pastor. He's not to be emoting because the emotion should come from the impact that the Holy Spirit brings through his word brings to you not because the pastor is manipulating through emotion which is what happens in so many churches because they don't trust god to do the job so they've got to play god the role of the pastor is to teach the word and equip the saints and when i get back we'll continue father thank you so much that we can come together and study these things as important as they are to understand with clarity not as Ephesians 4 will say, not to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but to have discernment, not to be deceived, not to be sidetracked by all of these other other things. Father, we pray too for anyone who's here who's never trusted in Christ as Savior, never understood the free gift of eternal life because Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, that he paid the penalty and so we don't have to do anything other than accept that free gift of eternal life by believing, by trusting in Christ as our Savior. We thank you so much for this indescribable gift of eternal life to be made alive again, to be in Christ, and to have all of these blessings you have given us. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.